coming up, beware the next hospital superbugs. Infectious disease has been having this resurgence and sneaking back up on us, and, and we are now really behind the curve. And the palm oil genome gives up its secrets. Readers can tell immediately uh, what type of tree will come from each seed that they plant. Currently, they can't do that. Plus, flatworms regrow their heads, even when they're chopped into tiny pieces. But how? This is The Nature Podcast. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. These days, if you get tonsillitis or an infected cut, it's no big deal. Just pop down to the doctors and get antibiotics to sort it out, right? Sadly, it's not that simple. Ever since the discovery of penicillin, the first antibiotic, bacteria have been fighting back, evolving resistance to the drugs we create to kill them. Most of us have heard of MRSA, but there are other much more sinister threats lurking around the corner. These bacteria, called Crees, that's C-R-E, are resistant to a category of antibiotics called carbapenems, the most powerful antibiotics on the shelf. This week, Mara McKenna has written a feature about the bacterial threat, and Noah Baker called her to ask what makes their resistance such a problem. Carbapenems are really kind of the last resort drugs for very serious infections, the kind that occur when someone is in intensive care or critical care. It used to be that these kind of infections, which can be bladder infections or lung infections or infections of the blood, responded to this last-ditch, quite small category of drugs, the carbapenems. There were four of them. And over the past 10 years, resistance to carbapenems has been emerging. It actually emerged first here in the United States and has been moving across the globe and now is in dozens of countries. And it's extremely serious because after the carbapenems, there are almost no drugs left. And give us an idea of how serious being infected by these CREs is. The numbers are really quite striking. In March, Thomas Frieden, who's a physician and the director of the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, gave a press conference releasing a report in which he said we have a very serious problem. He called them nightmare bacteria. And Sally Davies, uh, who is your chief medical officer in the U.K., at the same time called this problem catastrophic and as serious as terrorism. The report that Davies released estimated that for as simple an operation as a hip replacement, one out of every six might die. In the United States, the CDC's report said up to one half of people who get these CRE infections die as a result of them. Both of those numbers are really extraordinary. And you mentioned that MRSA has become quite famous, but these more serious versions of of antibiotic resistance were first identified 15 years ago, and yet people still don't seem to know about them. Why is that? These bugs were perfectly positioned to evade notice in a number of ways. First, because the surveillance systems that were set up to look for them were kind of partial. Um, Second, because the lab techniques that were used to detect them didn't really anticipate these bugs. And third, because medicine didn't really do as good a job as it might have of getting the word out about this new form of resistance. So all of those things combined meant that this problem really burgeoned and and literally moved around the world 
before we quite knew what was going on. This sounds like a really serious problem. So one would assume that the scientific community is responding by piling loads of money and loads of funding and loads of research into trying to fix it. Is that the case? Unfortunately, that's not the case. It turns out that in almost all countries, prevention research is really hard to fund. We're much better at doing research on behalf of identifying things and then attempting to to treat or cure things. Right now, it's also very hard to stimulate research to treat such things because we tend to rely on pharmaceutical manufacturers to do the research that supports new drugs. And a number of years ago, pharmaceutical manufacturers figured out that it's not really in their best bottom-line interest to research new antibiotics because unlike most categories of drugs, antibiotics actually cure the thing that they're aimed at. So you don't need to take antibiotics for very long. And as soon as an antibiotic is out on the market, resistance, such as the CRE resistance that we're talking about now, arises and makes your drug not useful anymore. So uh, pharmaceutical companies would rather make something like insulin or statins or Viagra. Those are reliable earners for their bottom line. Antibiotics are not. Have scientists just become a bit lax when it comes to researching infectious disease? You know, it's so interesting. Here in the U.S., they argue that our war on cancer came about because we decided that we were sort of done with infectious disease. And the CREs, as our story says, only really appeared about 15 years ago. So while we've been watching cancer and attempting to fight cancer in this very elaborate and technological and and pretty successful way, Infectious disease has been having this resurgence and sneaking back up on us, and and we are now really behind the curve. Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, predicted that antibiotic resistance was going to overtake us and said that we would have to keep an eye out. And we just didn't take his word seriously, and, and it's well past time that we did. Journalist Marin McKenna talking to Noah. Coming up in the research highlights, birds that navigate by smell, an electronic skin that glows when it's touched. And we'll be finding out if having the palm oil genome can make the crop more sustainable. But first, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. That line is from Rudyard Kipling's famous poem, If, and for all we know, he might have been talking about flatworms. Why? Because many of these little creatures can lose their head and grow a whole new one back. They're not the only animals that can, but they are the case study for three papers published this week that try and find out how they do it. Nature editor Henry G joins me in the studio to give us a heads up on what's new. Henry, first off, introduce us to regeneration in nature. The planarian flatworm is a lovely example. You can find them in any pond. They're cute little animals. They're about half a centimetre long. I've got quite a lot in the bottom of a water barrel at home. And the thing about them, many pond flatworms, is you can slice their heads off, you can slice them into bits, and they will completely regenerate any body part that is lost. They're proverbially well known for this. Um, uh, And so people have been looking at these flatworms for a long time to try and work out how they regenerate. And even Thomas Hunt Morgan, one of the fathers of genetics, was he started work on regeneration of, of these creatures. 
Now, these three new papers have compared species of planarian, of flatworm, that can regrow themselves to varying degrees. That's correct. There are lots and lots of different kinds of planarian, uh, and uh, the three different papers that we, we're publishing, each one looks at a different species of planarian that is not quite as good at regenerating as your average pond planarian. In particular, they're not so good at regenerating their heads depending on how far back you cut the worm in half. If you cut just the worm's head off, it will regenerate a new head. But if you cut it halfway down or towards the back, it'll be much less good at that until if you just expect it to grow a head from a bit of tail, it won't do it, where your average pond planarian will do so. And what the uh, various researchers have been doing is trying to find the molecular pathways that promotes, or in this case, inhibits head regrowth. We're talking about this like it's, you know, just matter of course. I suppose if a planarian it is, but this is pretty amazing, isn't it, to regrow an entire head made of quite different molecules and cells from a, you know, half a tail. Uh, yes, it, it is. A lot of animals can regenerate. Um, I have an axolotl at home called Squirty Benson Wilberforce III, and uh, axolotls are known to regenerate limbs and tails, but I don't know regenerate their heads. Uh, and uh, other animals, crabs and lobsters and things, will regenerate limbs if lost. Um, human beings, uh, we do regenerate a little bit. We heal wounds and um, we grow fingernails and so on. But wouldn't it it be nice if you were an amputee to be able to regrow a lost limb and I think that's kind of a holy grail. One doesn't promise anything and this is completely science fiction but the strategy that the various uh, laboratories working on these flatworms provides a start because by comparing flatworms with varying degrees of regenerative capability you can see what it is in flatworms exactly that is responsible and in, uh, in, uh, they show that um, there is a particular molecular signalling pathway which inhibits the regrowth of heads and when that is um, blocked, heads will regrow. And this particular signalling pathway is common to all life. It's known as the Wnt signalling pathway and lots of creatures have it. And indeed, in some of these worms that had a, a more limited regenerative capacity, blocking this, this crucial pathway led to their heads being able to regenerate where they couldn't before. That's correct. Um, this pathway has a control on the degree of regeneration in these worms. I suppose you have to have some control, otherwise you might grow all sorts of extra heads where you didn't need them or something. So what can we learn then about perhaps how mammals might regenerate bits of themselves from these worms? What we can learn from these worms is there, there is a particular molecular pathway, uh, the wind signalling pathway, that is involved in regeneration, the control of regeneration. So people looking in humans might try and see how this pathway is involved in wound healing or various kinds of regeneration or in activities of stem cells. Uh, in a sense, these are related because when you cut the head off a flatworm, the cells go into a kind of new mode of programming. They kind of become stem cells. Uh, so looking at these um, lowly pond life might give us a clue to some quite important insights into human regenerative medicine eventually. Henry G, thanks for dropping in. You can read all those papers by Rink et al, Umesono et al and Newmark and colleagues and their accompanying News and Views article at nature.com slash nature. Open your kitchen cupboard and chances are it'll contain products made using palm oil. 
From bread to biscuits, the slimy stuff accounts for nearly 50% of edible oil worldwide. You'll also find it in soaps and shampoos, and it's used to make biofuels, so it's a very important ingredient. Palm oil is produced by the fleshy orange fruits of the oil palm tree. In Indonesia and Malaysia, oil palm plantations produce millions of tonnes of oil per year. But to make room for all the palms, rainforests have been destroyed, endangering native wildlife. The pressure is on to make palm oil more sustainable. This week, a team of researchers have something that might help breeders do just that. They've sequenced the genome of the oil palm Elaeus guineensis, the biggest source of palm oil. I called author Robert Martinson from Cold Spring Harbour Laboratory in New York to ask what they found. We were able to identify essentially all of the genes involved in oil biosynthesis. And these, of course, are very important for the quality of the uh, vegetable oils that are produced by oil palm. But in addition, we were able to link the sequence to the genetic map, and consequently we were able to identify important genes in things like the development of the fruit and the seed uh, from which the oil is produced. And these genes are really important in controlling the yield, in other words, how much oil you get per fruit or per tree. And one of these genes you mention is in a separate paper, and it's called the shell gene. That's right. The most high-yielding trees were actually heterozygous. That's to say, one parent contained one form of the shell gene, and the other parent contained another form of the shell gene. And only when you combine those two forms did you get something called hybrid vigor, in which the offspring produced more oil per fruit uh, than either parent. So oil palm breeders rely on the shell gene to produce optimal hybrids. So after they finish breeding the parents, they cross them together to produce the hybrid. Oil palm trees that are homozygous for the shell gene usually don't make any fruit at all. Um, They're sterile. And these mutations determine what kind of fruit the oil palm produces. That's exactly right. Um, So if you have the mutation and you're homozygous, if you produce fruit at all, it it does not have a shell. And and that has all sorts of problems. If you have an oil palm tree that is homozygous for the wild type or normal form of the gene, then you have lots of fruit, but it has a very thick shell within the fruit, and that clearly reduces yield. So like Goldilocks, um, (laughs) the perfect combination is a tree that has both forms of the gene, and now you have a thin shell, uh, which means that you have lots of fruit, uh, and that fruit is much higher yielding. How do you think these results will help oil palm breeders? Uh, The most important immediate result uh, will be that breeders can tell immediately uh, what type of tree will come from each seed that they plant. Currently, they can't do that. And, of course, it takes between six and ten years for an oil palm tree to produce fruit after you plant it. And that means you have to wait a very long time uh, and occupy an awful lot of space uh, in your plantation before you know what the tree actually is. And so we'll be able to immediately uh, provide a genetic test that will tell the breeder uh, what sort of phenotype they can expect. In the long term, uh, it will affect yield of oil plantations uh, throughout Southeast Asia. And uh, we're really hoping that 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 will increase productivity and potentially reduce land use, uh, which is a major goal. 
There's a lot of concern over how uh, oil palm plantations are affecting the environment. If these results can tell breeders how they might you know, access more yield, is that going to increase the amount of plantations there are? I think that's an excellent question. And I think, you know, biology can only do so much. Um, policy has to be an important component of the equation. What we're hoping is that by increasing productivity, this will make oil palm more sustainable, actually not so much for the big companies, but for smallholders who actually provide a lot of the oil palm that's produced by Malaysia. Now, a big company you know, will have huge plantations in many different places, and so they're much less likely to suffer from disastrous yields one, one year. But the smallholder really can. Um, and these smallholders you know, have less reproducible yields and that is one of the driving forces uh, in other places in Southeast Asia for exploitation of rainforest. And so if we can stabilise yield, I think that's going to help. Malaysia is the second largest producer of palm oil in the world behind Indonesia. The country needs to make sure its oil is sustainable for its industry and its environment. That's according to fellow author Raviga David Sabantha Morthy, director of the Biotechnology and Breeding Programme at the Malaysian Palm Oil Board. The reason we started this project was so that we can increase the productivity and not open up land. Uh, one of the major constraints in Malaysia, as far as the oil palm industry goes, is that uh, we do not have enough land and uh, labour is another problem. So for these two reasons, we wanted to increase the productivity of the oil palm. And uh, this discovery is just a start and it's going to be a catalyst, we hope, for further discoveries of genes for other traits. And we really hope to put the oil palm industry on a really, really sustainable footing and in decrease the rainforest footprint of this very, very productive crop. That was Ravaga Devi Sabantha Morthy from the Malaysian Palm Oil Board and before her, Robert Martinson. Find both papers online at nature.com nature. The genome paper is free to access. The news chat isn't far off and editor Eric Hand will be joining us on the line from Washington, D.C. But before that, it's time for the research highlights, read by Charlotte Stoddart. Some seabirds can find their way home by smell. The Cory Shearwater nests on remote rocky islands in the open ocean with very few landmarks. Researchers in Italy captured shearwaters from the Azores Islands in the North Atlantic. They washed the nostrils of eight of them to wipe out their sense of smell and glued magnets to the heads of eight more to disrupt any magnetic scent. They left eight shearwaters alone as controls. The birds were then released hundreds of kilometres away from their island home. Within a few days, the control birds and nearly all the magnet-headed birds had reached home. But the birds with no sense of smell got lost. Only two of them returned home before the breeding season was over. Read more about that in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Pregnant ladies have it, people who've been out in the sun have it. They glow, and now a team at the University of California have made a flexible electronic skin patch that glows when touched. The researchers made the small patch of e-skin by layering transistors, pressure sensors and light-emitting diodes on top of a thin piece of plastic. The diodes are switched on locally where the surface is touched. The harder someone presses on the skin, the brighter it lights up. 
The team says the technology could be used to give robots a better sense of touch and maybe make interactive wallpaper that doubles as a touchscreen. Find that paper in Nature Materials. Finally this week, it's time for the news chat. And on the line from Washington, D.C. is U.S. news editor Eric Hand. And the first story you've got for us today is about a meeting at the end of this month in Minneapolis. That's right. Uh, It's a meeting of high-energy physicists. These are all the people that dream up the world's big physics machines. Things like the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, things like the Tevatron at Fermilab. Uh, And now uh, it's time for them to get together again and, and think about what's next. And I'm guessing it's a chance for America to think about its aspirations for that field. That's right. Uh, the center of gravity for this this world has shifted to CERN with, with the Large Hadron Collider. And in fact, uh, Fermilab, which is the center of U.S. Uh, high-energy physics, had to shut down its big machine, the Tevatron, a couple years ago. So this meeting is all about looking ahead to what's next for U.S. high-energy physics. And what kind of cases are delegates going to be putting forward? Well, one interesting idea that that appears to be getting a lot of enthusiasm is to bring back the cyclotron. Cyclotrons are are 80-year-old accelerators, but they can be built really cheaply and and, uh, in a small space. And uh, a few physicists have an idea to use these to generate a really powerful neutrino beam. So you mentioned these cyclotrons are around 80 years old. Are you surprised that this technology is, you know, returning? Yeah, and I think other physicists are as well. Cyclotrons have long since ceded ground to, to a different type of machine called a synchrotron, which is more of a, an accelerator ring. Cyclotrons accelerate particles that, that spiral out from the center of the device out to a ring. The key here, though, is that for the particular type of neutrino research that they're pursuing, they need not so much high-energy particles, but a very intense or powerful beam of neutrinos. And cyclotrons still are very good at doing that. And what about cost? Is this likely to be an expensive project for the U.S.? Well, there's an existing proposal at Fermilab that is quite expensive. It's, It's on the order of $800 million dollars. Um, this this upstart proposal to use cyclotrons uh, would be significantly cheaper, maybe on the order of $400 million. And who else, apart aside from those in the States, is likely to be watching the outcome? Well, everyone, really. I mean, this is a grassroots exercise that takes place every so often, and the results from this meeting will filter up into various advisory panels, both within the U.S. Department of Energy and then elsewhere in the world, uh, Japan and Europe, you know, the two other big players in high energy physics will sure to be, uh, they'll, they'll be watching as well. Okay, and the next story we have is about stem cells. A very particular type of stem cell that may not, in fact, even exist. That sounds very intriguing. Can you tell us more? Well, for the past few years, uh, uh, some researchers have been pushing very hard to make claims about a certain class of stem cell-like cells called VSEL, or V-cells, very small embryonic-like cells. And they've been claiming all sorts of therapeutic value for these cells, which are less than six micrometers or so. 
Um, and they've even started up companies and have started human trials. But some new evidence, some new papers this week show that these cells may not even exist. What reason did scientists have to doubt their existence? Well, the evidence has been coming from a few different directions. Uh, This week, a researcher at Stanford University found that they aren't exhibiting any of the molecular signatures of pluripotency, which is what would constitute stem cell-like behavior. And another, uh, in another set of experiments, they found that the cells, these things, whatever they are, did not grow into spheres uh, in vitro, nor did they differentiate into blood cells, um, you know, which kind of begs the question, what are these things uh, at all? And not only are they being used in research, they're being used in human trials. Um, one of the big proponents for these class of cells has started a trial and is injecting 60 patients Uh, who have angina uh, with uh, a particular V-cell preparation. And is their use dangerous? I think it's too early to say that, but I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm across the world for many different types of embryonic-like adult cells. Um, You may have heard of another class of cells called mesenchymal stem cells, and there's similar doubts about these. Um, The doubts aren't so much about their safety as they are whether... Uh, claims have been exaggerated as to their their efficacy or their benefits. And I understand there's a political angle to this too. That's right. The Polish researcher who patented his discovery of these VSELs has partnered and licensed the rights to these cells to companies that that have the support of the Vatican. Uh, In fact, they've donated a million dollars to a foundation that that is pushing therapies based on these cells. And that's at least in part because the Vatican uh, lobbies for adult stem cell treatments as an ethical alternative to embryonic stem cell therapies. And presumably if their existence is disproved, that will remove them from research? Um, Not necessarily. I mean, you could still go down a route of of doing the basic research and figuring out what these things are, um, but certainly it would be a blow to uh, the companies that have been set up around this type of cell um, and those that are trying to push them very quickly into the clinic. Thanks, Eric. All those stories and more are available at nature.com slash news. Most popular on the website right now are giant viruses with very few known genes, and one of the world's slowest experiments, the pitch drop experiment in Dublin, yields a result. That's it for this week. Join us again next time when we'll be having a latte and talking about milk tolerance. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 